0: Well, good morning. I know you couldn't sense my panic, but uh, earlier I came up here uh, to the platform and, and set up my iPad and, um, and then promptly forgot that I had done that. And so while I was standing back there, I was thinking, I wonder where my iPad is? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm uh, actually, I'm not as worried about it as I wish. But, um, I just want you to know, uh, so that you can be praying, that this, uh, this week I'll, uh, I'm going to be on the road again, or in the air, or however you phrase that. Uh, this coming weekend, I leave on Wednesday, and this coming weekend I'll be in Saudi uh, with uh, Potter's House of Arabia there. And we'll be taking two days, it's the end of Ramadan, and so they have some time off, and so we'll be taking two days to work through uh, a, a seminar on the gospel of God's grace to make sure that we're all on the same track with that. And, um, and I, unbeknownst to me, uh, Potter's House of Canada got in touch with them, Potter's House of Toronto got in touch with them, and we're actually going to be connected via the airwaves. Uh, it's, it's quite a few hours ahead over there. Uh, and so we're looking forward to that. And then after that, I'll be headed up to, uh, to Europe on the way home. Uh, there's a, a group up there that would like to uh, uh, join us in our church plant as well, and uh, we're not sure how all that will turn out, but there's going to be some conversation. And so you can be praying about that and that God would give wisdom uh, both to them and to us and to the elders as we consider uh, whether, or not, uh, whether or not to take on this responsibility and enjoy this privilege. So be praying, and uh, I'll see you... Shortly after I get back. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's second letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And uh, this is part 47 and entitled, Guard What Was Entrusted to You. And we'll be unpacking 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. 3 weeks ago Brian walked us through verses 11 and 12 of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and as he walked us through that passage he taught us two very important principles that are found there and because it's been 3 weeks for the sake of establishing context for this morning I want to read the passage to you again 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 says this and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, Brian placed the emphasis, as far as I'm concerned, in those two verses squarely where it should be, when he said that there were two, primarily two reasons why Paul was not ashamed that he was suffering in prison because of his dogged determination to preach the gospel at any cost. You see, Paul could have gotten out of prison in a heartbeat if he had only been willing to say that we're made righteous in God's sight by keeping God's law. Paul could have gotten out of prison. But Paul refused to say that we're made righteous in God's sight by keeping God's law because Paul knew that we are made righteous in God's sight by believing the good news that Jesus has died for us, that he was buried, that he rose again. On the third day, Paul believed that we're saved by grace through faith and stubbornly maintained that there was no other way to be right with God. And that's why Paul so often found himself contending with people who were teaching that we are saved by keeping the law or by doing the right thing. In other other words, Paul believed that we are not saved by what we do or by what we will do. We are instead saved by what Jesus has done. And because of the richness of that truth, Paul was not ashamed to have been imprisoned because he told other people that truth. And as Brian pointed out as he taught the passage we looked at three weeks ago, Paul was not ashamed that he had been put in prison. And he was not ashamed because he knew two things he knew his calling, and he knew Jesus. Paul was not ashamed of his calling because he knew that he'd been appointed by God himself to carry the good news, to announce the good news, and to teach the good news to other people. And if God wanted Paul's life to be all about the good news, Paul didn't care that he had been thrown in prison, just so long as he had been thrown in prison for doing what God wanted him to do. That's why, as Brian pointed out, Paul believed that his being in prison was no cause to be ashamed. Because Paul knew that when God called him to preach, listen to this, when God called him to preach the gospel, God also at the same time called him to spend the last days of his life in prison for preaching the gospel to others. So as Brian pointed out, Paul wasn't ashamed of being in prison because he knew that he was in prison because he'd been doing what God sent him to do. He was preaching the gospel. He was telling people the good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf. For them. But if you remember from three weeks ago, Brian pointed out that there was another reason why Paul was not ashamed that he was in prison. And that reason might have come to light as perhaps one of Paul's friends might have leaned in, visiting him there in prison, might have leaned in and said, Paul, God called you to serve him and, and you entrusted your life to him and, and then you ended up here in prison. I don't know, Paul, yeah, this, this doesn't look very good. This looks bad, and I'm inclined to think that Paul might have responded by saying, I know it looks bad, but I also know him. And I know he's able to guard and safely keep everything that I've entrusted to him. Paul was confident of that. And even if I die here in prison, Paul might have continued, I know that the day will come when I will stand in his presence, and on that day I will know that he deserved my trust all along. I think it's important that we take confidence from Paul's confidence because Paul wasn't trusting in himself or in his own ability to sort things out. Paul was trusting Jesus because he knew that Jesus is able to guard what Paul had entrusted to him. Paul began his journey, by, uh, his journey of faith by believing the good news that Jesus had died for him and was raised to life again, and Paul intended to continue his journey of faith by believing that same truth until the day that he finally stood in Jesus' presence. And now we need to move on. But before we do, I want you to notice two words up there on the screen from that passage from three weeks ago. One is the word guard, and the other is the word entrusted because they're going to have great bearing on the passage that we'll be unpacking this morning. And as always, we began begin unpacking the passage this morning by standing together and reading it aloud together. So if you would, stand with me as we read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Thanks. You can take your seats. Thankful that God always speaks to us through His Word. The story that I planned to tell you this morning comes from the Old Testament and begins with a man named Hezekiah, well, sort of begins with a man named Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah and who reigned on David's throne. He actually sat on David's throne. Hezekiah was a good man, but his son Manasseh, who became king after him, was neither a good man nor a good king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. And then when he died, his son Ammon took his place as king. And Ammon was every bit as bad as his dad was, but for less time, because he became king when he was 22 years old, and then died when he was 24 years old. So as the story begins, think about this. It's been 57 years since Hezekiah's reign as a good king over Judah. And while that doesn't seem like a very long time, something happened in those 57 years that is so shocking that it's scarcely believable. And so as I tell the story, be listening for that that thing that was so shocking and see if you can sort out what it was. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from 2 Kings chapters 21 and 22. Ammon, the son of Manasseh, became king when he was 22 years old. He was a man just like his father and cared nothing for God or his law and didn't walk in obedience to God. The officials that served Ammon and his court quickly began to conspire against him and just as quickly assassinated him. The people of Israel executed those who assassinated Ammon and they made his son Josiah king in his place. Josiah was only eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. Josiah was a refreshing change of pace because unlike his father and his grandfather, Josiah did what was right and chose to follow the ways of his ancestor, King David, and once he started on that course, even as a young man, he did not stray from that path. When Josiah was 26 and had reigned for 18 years, he sent his secretary, a man named Shaphan, to the temple of the Lord and told him to talk with the high priest, a man named Hilkiah. Through his secretary, King Josiah gave orders to the high priest to use the temple funds, the temple offerings, to hire carpenters, builders, and masons, and to buy stone and, and timber with which they could repair the temple, which had fallen into very serious disrepair. They began the work in earnest And then one day, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to the king's secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Hilkiah gave the book to the king's secretary, and the king's secretary read it. Then later, Shaphan, the king's secretary, reported to the king and told him about the progress that had been made in the the build and in the construction on the temple. And then Shaphan said to the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me... A book. And Shaphan read a portion of the book to King Josiah. When King Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes in utter despair and then ordered Hilkiah the priest, Shapan, his secretary, and a few other men to go along together to the home of the prophetess Huldah, Huldah and ask her what to do. The king told him to relate to Huldah that the book of the law had been found. And then they were to say to her, we have found the book of the law and in reading it we know that God's anger is burning against us because the people who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. The king then told the men to ask the prophetess Huldah what he should do to avoid God's punishment. God then spoke and tol- spoke to Huldah and told her that he was going to bring disaster on the nation of Israel because they had forsaken him and burned incense to other gods, even in the temple. God said that he was going to punish the people of Israel with all of the curses and punishments he had announced in the book of the law that they had so recently recovered. And then God went on to emphasize that he was truly going to do what he said, but then God said that he had seen that King Josiah had responded to him, had been responsive to him, and had humbled himself and torn his robes and wept in the presence of the Lord. And because of that, God told King Josiah that the punishment would surely come, but it would not happen until after King Josiah had died and been buried in peace. The men then left the home of the prophetess Huldah and returned to Jerusalem to tell King Josiah what God had said. And that It's the story from God's Word. Now, perhaps you'll remember that before I told the story, I said that something had happened in Israel in the 57 years before the story that was so shocking as to be scarcely believable. And I'm wondering if you caught it. Did you catch it? What was that shocking thing that came out in the story? Well, it's pretty shocking that in the story they found the book of the law. But to me, it's even more shocking that sometime during those 57 years before the story, they lost the book of the law. Israel lost God's law. They lost God's word. To put it in perspective, maybe we can step back from the story and come back to 2023 in our church here. And let's suppose that we project 57 years into the future and we visit the people who make up Potter's House Church in 2080, 57 years from now. Well, this building will probably be gone by that time. I fully expect that. But let's say that they're renovating the building that they've been occupying and and the building where they've been meeting. And during the renovation, the secretary goes to the pastor and says that the workers have found a book in the closet. So the pastor asks the secretary, what kind of book did the workers find? And and the secretary says, well, it, it says Holy Bible here on the cover. So the pastor says... Huh. And I'm sure what, the, what a Bible is, the pastor asked the secretary to read something from the book. We don't have to stretch this illustration out any further uh, to realize how heartbreaking it would be, at least for me, I, I trust it would be for you, if 57 years from now, God's word and the good news about Jesus is no longer available in the rooms and corridors of the Potter's House Church of Camdenton. But that is what happened in Israel during the reign of King Josiah. Hilkiah the priest knew that it was the book of the law, but then he gave it to Shaphan, the king's secretary, and the secretary took the book to the king and said, they have found a book in the temple of the Lord. He didn't say they have found the book, he said they found a book in the temple of the Lord of the Lord. And I wonder if the people of Israel had a t-shirt thing going on like we have a t-shirt thing going on here at Potter's House where our t-shirts say, bring the book. But having said that, I don't think they did have a t-shirt thing going on because their t-shirts wouldn't have said bring the book. They would have said bring a book. But that's not the same thing at all. Not at all. Bring a book doesn't sound like a Bible study. It sounds like a Totally disorganized book club. As in, yeah, bring a book and we'll discuss it. To which you might say, what book? What book should I bring? I don't know. Look at my t-shirt. It says, bring a book. Totally disorganized book club. We shouldn't make fun of this because when they lost God's law, when they lost God's word, they also lost their sense of God, their understanding of him and his holiness. The people of Israel of that that day devalued and disrespected God to the degree that they had devalued and disrespected God's word. In the beginning of time, God had been building his word and his character into his people. He had been instructing his people and at the same time constructing the faith of his people. God had been constructing their faith. And he continued doing that all through the time of Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David the king. But even as God was busy constructing their faith, the day came when they got busy deconstructing their faith. And they continued deconstructing their faith until the day when Shaphan, the king's secretary, said to King Josiah, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. But by that time, they had gone so far in deconstructing their faith that even with the help of the most faithful king that either Israel or Judah ever had, they were unable to reconstruct the faith that they had destroyed. As a consequence, shortly after King Josiah was peacefully laid in his grave, the nation of Israel was invaded, swept away from their home, and taken into captivity. And all of that happened because they had failed to guard what had been entrusted to them, God's holy word. So what am I trying to say? Well, by now you know that here at the Potter's House, whether Brian teaches or I teach, we always begin with a review. You've seen us do that week after week for a long time now. Both of us do that because we, we both know that the primary job of a Bible teacher is to interpret God's Word in context. I mean, if you think about it, we could just stand up here and read the Bible. And and after reading God's Word, we could all go home greatly benefited and greatly blessed. Uh, and there'd, there'd be nothing wrong with do, with that. But but here at the Potter's House, we choose to not simply read God's Word, we Talk about God's Word. And we choose to talk about God's Word on a Sunday morning because of something that it says in Nehemiah 8.8. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. On Sunday morning, we pattern our time together after what they did that day during the time of Nehemiah. And I wonder if you fully appreciate the weight of the responsibility that that verse implies And considering that, I want you to think about this. An almighty, all-knowing, all-wise God has said something in his word to his people. And then someone in our church stands up here behind this pulpit and gives the meaning of what God has said. I don't know if you have a digital concordance with your digital Bible, but if you do and if you use the NIV, then launch your concordance, not right now, you can do this later, Uh, They're they're even going to do it in life group later. Uh, If you do, and if you use the NIV, then launch your concordance and type in, quote, this is what the Lord says, close quote. And then hit that little magnifying glass thing, ye. And as you read down through that list, oh, it's so refreshing. As you read down through that list, you'll hear Moses say, this is what the Lord says. And you'll hear Joshua say it. And you'll hear Samuel say it. You'll hear someone called the man of God say it. You'll hear Elijah say it. You'll hear Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Nahum, and Zechariah say it. They'll all say, this is what the Lord says. And then fill the people in with God's words and help them to understand the meaning. And by God's grace, when you sit in those seats on a Sunday morning, you will always hear me say, this is what the Lord says. Or as I prefer to phrase it, this is the story from God's Word. So here from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, we interpret God's Word. We don't update God's Word. We don't edit God's Word. We don't revise God's Word. We interpret God's Word. And to help you to fully understand that nuance, I need to introduce you to, or remind you perhaps of, of, of two technical terms that have everything to do with how we interpret God's Word, and those two terms are exegesis, that's a very big word you can see, and eisegesis, those two words. And they're both big words that explain how we interpret God's Word. And if you give me just a couple of breaths here in a minute, I'll, 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 I'll try to simplify those terms for you. The simplest way to explain the difference between those two things is to say that people who exegete God's Word come to the text, listen, People who exegete God's Word come to the text with the assumption that the meaning is in the text, that it's right there in the text. And it's the teacher's job to draw the meaning out of the text and pass it along to other people. That's what an exegete, an exegeter, exegeter, that's what he does. So those who exegete draw the meaning out of the text and pass it along... And I can tell you, I can tell you without any hesitation, that that's how Brian teaches God, studies and teaches God's Word. That's how I study and teach God's Word. And when one of the elders stands up here in this pulpit, that's how he handles God's Word as well. So that's exegesis, but what's eisegesis? Well, people who eisegete God's Word come to the text with the assumption that the meaning is in them, in themselves, And for them, it's the teacher's job to draw the meaning out of themselves and pass it along to other people using the text. And that means that sometimes they actually do teach God's Word, but only when God's Word agrees with them. And when God's Word disagrees with them, they feel perfectly free to manipulate God's Word or ignore God's Word. And they even feel free to say, this part of the book is not God's Word. Because they approach God's word that way, what they believe begins to change over time. What they believe becomes more modern. It becomes more progressive. It becomes more ecumenical. It becomes more palatable to our so-called enlightened post-modern post-Christian society. In fact, after all the years that God has spent constructing our faith... There are people who claim to be teaching the Bible who will tell you freely that they are deconstructing their faith. That's their choice of words, not mine. Deconstruction is the word they choose for themselves to describe the process they're going through as they study God's Word from this new perspective, the perspective that says, the truth is not in the Word of God, the truth is in me. Now I just need to find a way to get that out. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that when I begin to deconstruct anything, if I don't stop at some point, it's not long until there's nothing left of that thing that I was deconstructing. And if you don't believe that, go home today and take all the windows out of your house this week. And the next week, you can start on the doors and then the walls and then the roof and then the bearing walls. Leave, take the roof before you take the bearing walls <laughs> because anyway, there'd be a surprise and if you don't stop, if you don't stop with that process, then the day will come when you have nothing left to pass on to your children but an empty plot of land. But before you get busy with your deconstruction of your house or of your faith, take a look at, with me at what Paul says here in verse 13. What you heard from me, keep. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Paul was in the construction business. He wasn't in the deconstruction business. And he had a pattern that he himself followed when he taught, a pattern that he wanted Timothy to follow whenever Timothy had the opportunity to teach someone else. In my own personal life, I can trace this pattern of sound teaching all the way back to 1960 when I was four years old. I don't know the exact date in 1960 because when I was four years old, there were only two dates that meant anything to me during the course of the year, August 21st and December 25th. Uh, August 21st was my birthday, and December 25th was... Well, I'll I'll let you work that out on your own. So I can't remember the exact date in 1960, but I do remember the day that my mom helped me to get all dressed up so that we could go on what seemed like a very long car ride My dad parked the car. And we walked into what I recognized to be a very large church. And as we came in the main entrance, I could see down that long hall, that long aisle that that led to the front of the church. At the very front of that aisle, right right in front of where the the preacher was going to speak, I couldn't help but notice but that there was a long box made of dark wood at the end of the aisle in the front of the church. The box was open. And to my four-year-old eyes, it appeared that someone was in the box. And while people were leaning over the box, the person in the box didn't seem to be talking to them. I watched the person in the box as we stood in line to get closer to the box, but I can tell you that the person in the box didn't talk or even move as one group of people after another stood over him and looked at him. And then it was our turn to stand beside the box. My mother cried as we stood there, and that one is that's when I noticed that the man in the box didn't seem to be breathing. He wasn't moving at all. We sat there in the church, while the pastor of the church said a whole bunch of stuff that I don't even remember anymore. Then it was time to go home. I clearly remember sitting in silence all the way home and then When it was time to change back into my play clothes, I finally found the courage to ask my mom what was wrong with the man in the box, because as I explained to my mom, it looked like he was sleeping, but I don't think he was. So my mom said that he had passed away, but I didn't know what that meant, and so that made no sense to me at all, and that's when she told me quite plainly that he had died, And, well, I knew that my goldfish had died and our little dog had died, and I remember saying that to my mom and then asking her with rising panic in my voice, are you telling me that that happens to people too? Now, my mom could see that her little four-year-old son was afraid, and she might have easily decided to simply say, oh, no, sweetheart, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that happening to you but I could tell you this morning that I will be forever grateful that she chose to tell me the truth that day. Yeah, buddy, she said, that's, that's something that happens to everyone that's born. It'll happen to your dad someday, and it'll happen to me someday, and, and someday it'll happen to you too because everyone that's born will someday die. I remember standing there in shocked silence for a minute or so, and then I let out a blood-curdling scream, And I shouted at the top of my voice, I don't want that to happen to me. I spun on my little heel and I I, I ran down the hallway into my bedroom and I turned the corner and slid all the way, jumped and slid all the way across my bed, all the way to the other side and down between my bed and the floor, my bed and the wall and laid there in the floor and cried. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to me. My mom came into the room and pulled the bed away from the wall so that she could pick me up and hold me in her lap. She repeated to me once again what she had just said and confirmed for me that I would indeed die one day. And then she brought up a name with which I was already very familiar. She repeated to me once again what she had just said and confirmed for me that I would die, but that that my death didn't have to be a forever thing because God loved me so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, to die in my place. And then she told me that if I would believe that Jesus had died for me and that he was buried and rose again for me, God would forgive me and give me eternal life. She said that if I believed that Jesus died and rose again for me, then just like Jesus, I would live again after I had died. I trusted Christ as my Savior and have had eternal life ever since that day. But that day also established a pattern of teaching in my life. What my mother said that day, that pattern of teaching resonated with me then. And I can tell you truthfully that it resonates with me still today. It has resonated with me for my whole life. My mother followed that pattern. My Sunday school teachers followed that pattern. The pastor of the church where I grew up followed that pattern. And as I've lived my life since that day, I have consistently sought out friends who are following that pattern as well, that pattern of teaching. And what is that pattern? Our God is a holy and just God, who hates sin and punishes sinful people. And I am sinful, so that means that I am supposed to be punished for my sin. I'm supposed to die for my sin, but Jesus was punished in my place. Jesus has died for me. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead for me. And even though it's been more than 60 years since I first heard that message... I can tell you, well, listen to me, I can tell you that that message does not need to be modernized, ecumenized, updated, made more palatable, or edited, or changed in any way. In any way. The people who preceded me, and the people who have traveled with me, kept the message of the gospel intact when they passed it along to me as I've constructed my faith along the way, I've tried with God's help to keep that message intact as I live it out and pass it on to still other people. And part of what that means for me is that, please understand this, part of what that means for me is that when someone leans in now and says that he's willing to help me deconstruct my faith, I just say no. And I'm going to keep saying no because of what Paul says in verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul tells Timothy to guard what was entrusted to him. And I want to remind you that in verse 12, Paul has just said, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Until that day, there's that pattern of teaching. I hope we're catching the drift here. Jesus first entrusted Paul with the gospel, and in response to that, Paul entrusted Jesus with his entire being and his eternal future. And and Paul has already said that he entrusted Jesus with that because he knows Jesus. And he's convinced that Jesus is able to guard what Paul had entrusted to him until the day when Paul finally stands in his presence. But don't miss this. Paul then turned around and entrusted Timothy with the gospel and told Timothy to guard what had been entrusted to him. So you see the pattern of teaching there? Jesus entrusted Paul with the gospel, the good news. And in response, Paul entrusted Jesus with his life, his eternal future, knowing that Jesus was able to guard what Paul had entrusted to him. And then Paul turned and entrusted Timothy with the message of the gospel. And in response, Timothy entrusted Jesus with his eternal future. And then Paul told Timothy to guard the message that had been entrusted to Timothy. Paul wanted Timothy to guard the message of the gospel and keep it intact as he, Timothy, passed the message along to others who, having received the gospel intact, would then guard the message and keep it intact as they passed it along to others. And later in this letter, Paul will insist that that process continue in an unending, unbroken line until every people group on the planet hears the pure message that Jesus died for them that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day for them, just as truly as he did that for us. And as they hear that message, by God's grace, they'll believe that message and refuse to trust themselves or their own good works, but instead entrust their eternal future to Jesus, who is ever able to guard what, was in, what, what is entrusted to him. It's been more than 60 years since I first entrusted myself to Jesus, as I believe the good news that he was punished for me. He died for me. He was buried, and he rose again for me. And I can tell you honestly that during those more than 60 years, I've run into a lot of people who want to mess with and change that message. As we've often said in quoting the Apostle Paul, the gospel is the power of God. It doesn't have the power of God. The gospel is the power of God that saves people. And Satan knows that. He knows that he can't take the power of the, out of the gospel. So for 2,000 years now, he's settled for taking the gospel out of the hands of the church. And in my more than 60 years, I've seen my fair share of that. There's been new evangelicalism, new evangelicalism. There's been the ecumenical movement. There's been more cults and schisms and isms than I can count. As I've been saying now recently, there's a movement that, that's gaining momentum where people who claim to believe the gospel have begun deconstructing their faith in the hopes of having a more modern, more progressive message to share with people. Something that isn't quite as offensive as God hates sin and punishes sinful people, but Jesus was punished in your place. Everywhere we turn these days, there are books and churches and teachers and spiritual leaders and conferences and podcasts that will invite you to hear what they have to say. They'll invite you to join them on their journey. And they may not tell you up front that they are deconstructing their faith. And they may not tell you that that's what they'll be helping you to do but that's what they're planning to do. They'll draw you in, and if you don't guard what has been entrusted to you, they will have you taking your faith apart piece by piece until there's next to nothing left of what you used to believe. And that's when you begin inviting other people to begin deconstructing their faith because that's, there's a pattern to that teaching as well. So I'm asking you to remain alert. And to be aware that not every Bible study is designed to help you construct your faith in the finished work of Christ. Some so-called Bible studies are actually designed to help you deconstruct your faith. And in my experience, those Bible studies, those are like quicksand in in which you'll get get so stuck that you may not be able to find your way out. Find your way to freedom from what they teach. So if you get invited to a Bible study or a group, Look before you leap. Look before you leap. And if you're unsure, get some advice from someone that you trust before you get stuck. Because once you start deconstructing your faith, it's hard to stop. Hey, I'm the old guy in the room. And I know that many years ago, I was entrusted with the gospel. And I've sought to guard it ever since. I have in turn entrusted the light of the gospel, the message of the gospel to many people in many places in this dark world. And it's consistently consistently my prayer that having begun with that good news, all of those people, including you, will continue to build and construct their faith on that foundation until the day that they see Jesus. Because Jesus is someone, (laughs) the only one you know, or can know who is able to guard that which you've entrusted to him. He is the only one. I also hope that you know that the gospel has now been entrusted to you, and God expects you to guard that which he's entrusted to you. So don't ever let anyone talk you into deconstructing what God has constructed in your life. By God's grace, through God's word, and with the help of God's spirit, I've been constructing my faith for more than 60 years and I can tell you from the depths of my heart right now by God's grace, through God's word and with the help of God's spirit I will never deconstruct my faith for as long as I live. And it may be that the day will come when you're standing by my deathbed and if that happens I beg you to lean in real close to this old ear. Don't tell me about my accomplishments. Don't tell me about the change I made. Don't tell me about the difference that's out there because I was there and involved. Don't tell me about my accolades. Don't talk to me about any of that stuff. Instead, lean into this old ear and tell me the old, old story one last time because that's where my hope lies. And you'll be sending, to my, sending me to my grave a... Uh, a happy, joyful, overwhelmed man because that story that I believed 60-plus years ago holds me safe still today. And I trust that's the case for you. And while I may not be able to... while I may not be able to respond or have the strength to talk, you may see my mouth moving and I don't know that you'll be able to read lips, but, but I think I'll be wording the mouthing the words of that old hymn, stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid the ransom for me. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. What you heard from me, keep. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we thank you for reminding us of the journey that we've been on. God, I trust that, that every single person here that's just listened to my voice has had a moment like I had when I was four years old, like the Apostle Paul had, like Timothy had, has had that moment when when they just made up their minds that they just were never going to be good enough, when they understood that you you are a holy and just God who hates hates sin and punishes sinful people. God, we're included in that, but you're also a God of love and mercy and grace. But God, who loved this world so much, the people of this world so much, you gave your one and only son who died in our place so that as we believe in him, there's the moment, God, we will have eternal life. God, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't made that choice to actually believe and state their faith, then God, let this be the moment. Father, thank you for the work you've done in our hearts. Thank you that that we can count on you to keep safe, to guard that which we've entrusted to you. Thank you that you've entrusted the gospel to us. And God, give us the strength to keep it safe, to guard it until we see you face to face. And we'll thank you for it. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Amen. Um, You know, we always talk about what we're going to do as we head out that door. And um, I don't know. I don't know that everybody that's sitting there listening to my voice has had that moment. So as you head out the door, before you head out the door, turn to somebody and say, I believe in Jesus. I've trusted him as my Savior. Encourage them to believe as well. And then maybe you'll find people out there that need to hear that message too. Keep it safe. Keep it intact. Pass it along by God's grace. If we've huddled up and we're headed out and we know the play, I guess it's all that's left for me is to say, ready? Go get him, Potter's House. <laughs>